Hi, everyone. It's Lee. I'm here to tell you that the Politics Girl podcast will be adding a limited amount of Friday shows until the midterms to bring attention to as many essential races and issues as possible. So we will be Tuesdays and Fridays until November 8th, when I plan to celebrate, sleep, and then go back to a once a week schedule. Every vote, every voice, every dollar counts right now. I hope you'll join us as we fight for America. Let's just cut to the chase. Republicans are hypocrites. They're hypocrites. Oh, I'm there with you. List of 25 things that they say. I think that might be a child. <laughs> <laughs> you were, okay, go answer your door. You were at the Republicans are hypocrites and we will come hypocrites. right back. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. This is possibly one of our last episodes before the midterms, and I hope you not only have a plan to vote or have already voted, but you've convinced other people in your life to do so as well. This is not your father's midterms. This is not the time for low turnout or disinterest or platitudes like the party in power always loses seats. This election could quite possibly decide our fate as a nation. Are we a country who will fight for democracy, truth, and freedom? Or are we, like many other nations in the world, too apathetic to realize we have to save those things before they are taken from us? Will we allow ourselves to be outmaneuvered by anti-democratic forces who want nothing more than for us to conform to the whims of a small, violent, vocal minority? Or do we, as the majority voice in this country, stand up and say, no, you've gone too far, and we will defeat you up and down the ticket to prove it? With that in mind, today's pod is a candid conversation with Minnie Timaraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, here to remind us what we're fighting for in this election and why you cannot sit this one out. Before becoming president of NARAL, Minnie was a senior advisor on DEI and accessibility policy for the Biden-Harris administration. She served as a national women's vote director for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign and was instrumental member of Planned Parenthood. She joins NARAL with over 20 years experience leading all levels of political campaigns, as well as advocacy efforts around reproductive rights, gender, and racial justice. I'm having her on today to remind everyone what is at stake on November 8th. Not just the continuation of free and fair elections, but the autonomy over our own bodies and our rights to personal freedoms and privacy in this country. It doesn't matter if you have never voted before. We have to say loud and clear that this is enough, and we have to say it at the ballot box. So without further ado, please welcome my guest, seasoned campaigner, gifted coalition builder, and president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, Minnie Timaraju. Welcome, Minnie. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. Oh, you know what? Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so glad you're here. This is such an yeah. important time in American history. And, you know, you've been deeply committed to sexual and reproductive health for decades, but this is a genuinely dangerous time in American history. And I just wanted to have you on so you could help me impart the seriousness of this moment onto our listeners. I appreciate that. I mean, um, I've been on the road. I just got back from Georgia uh, and everywhere I go in the country, I have people come up to me telling horror stories about the state of affairs in this country. You know, Georgia has a six-week ban in place, and I think it's just beginning to click for, you know, everyday Georgians, the impact on an already burdened healthcare system. So I can't think of a better time to, with the elections, like what, I think we're 34 days away? I'm losing track. 34 days or 33 days? Yeah. And when this airs, it'll be even closer. So yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a better time um, to amplify these issues and really excited to have this conversation with you, but also reach 
your incredible link listenership who I know are super engaged and I'm hoping are very actively campaigning and doing get out the vote because as we're going to talk about the stakes in this election, I know we say every cycle this is the most important election of our cycle of our lifetimes, but this very well could be for if only you, if only related to the issues of reproductive freedom and democracy, the fundamentals of our democracy are on, on the line and they're deeply interconnected. Yeah, no, I don't think we can even pretend that this isn't the actual most important election of our lifetime because democracy itself has never been on the ballot. And the amount of times we've talked about Roe being reversed and now it really has been and then it's going to be you know, it's just, it's only going to snowball from here if we don't get it together. So no, no, I think this is exactly the moment. And I'm, I'm very proud of my listeners. I'm very proud of their passion. And, and I've always said it, it's important that we are responsible for our people. So if you're sitting here listening to the show and listening to this conversation with the two of us, you then go out and talk to your people and then they talk to their people. And that's in many ways, how we make real change in this country where we all care and, and go out and do this. Now, I know people are familiar with Planned Parenthood very familiar with Planned Parenthood. We hear about it all the time. But I don't think people are as familiar with NARAL. And so for those of you who don't know, what is NARAL Pro-Choice America and what exactly do you guys do? It's a great question. And I'm a former Planned Parenthood alumni. I know you are. Yeah. And and a former Emily's List alumni. So I know you've had LaFonza and Alexis, my dear sisters in the struggle. Um, Marvelous. we, We all work really, really closely together. I will say um, I was really thrilled to join NARAL 11 months ago. It's been 11 months of this job. I joined a couple of weeks before the oral arguments in the Dobbs versus Jackson case. Um, so it was really fortuitous timing. Uh, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster. But um, <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, NARAL um, is an exciting place to join, though, because what we get to do at NARAL is what I call you know 360 advocacy. We're not a healthcare provider. You know, we don't just focus on elections. We do organizing, mobilization, you know, messaging. We work with candidates. We lobby. We advocate in capitals and in Washington, D.C. And and then we work on elections. So it's the 360. We're electing good people, getting rid of the bad guys. Then we're lobbying the good people and saying, this is what you need to do. And then we're mobilizing folks to be engaged in the advocacy work, both electorally and issue advocacy. So that's the unique the unique role that we have compared to some of the other groups. And because we just do advocacy and we're not a health provider, we can be a little bit more aggressive on some of the policy issues. And because we're people powered, you know, we're 4 million members strong this year. We're a membership organization with the emphasis on organizing. We can really focus on moments like this, where you have this awakening in our society where more Americans than ever before are aware of abortion I think the latest perianum poll had 97% of Americans have heard something about abortion in the press in the last two weeks. That is like a mind boggling number. It really is. The awareness levels are so high. This is a mobilization moment. And we were truly built for this moment. And that's what NARAL does. A little history. We're just over 50 years old. And uh, Shirley Chisholm was an early uh, board member uh, and advisory board member, which we're really proud of. And we were founded um, before Roe v. Wade as the National Association to Repeal Abortion Laws. So in some ways, (laughs) that mission is more relevant than ever. Yeah, Uh, you guys are the OG. We've been there a a long time, along with Planned Parenthood and others as well. Um, And we are more than ever committed to the fight for abortion access, but also the broader fight for reproductive freedom. 
yeah, I think you guys do obviously abortion access, but birth control, fighting pregnancy discrimination, paid family leave. I mean, as you just said, like it's not just about getting the right people into office and the bad people out of office. It's about holding the people in office once they're there accountable for what it is that you stand for. Yeah. And, you know, it's so, you know, in our recent history. So, you know, I worked for Secretary Clinton's presidential campaign in 2016. And I was on the other side being lobbied by uh, my predecessor, Elise Hogue, and her team. Uh, and you would think you don't need to necessarily lobby Hillary Clinton, who was amazing on all of these issues. But there were some things we had to shift and do. Like Secretary Clinton was the first presidential candidate to come out uh, for elimination of the Hyde Amendment, which, as you know, uh, restricts federal uh, funding for abortion access, which is a huge impediment to women of color, marginalized communities, rural Americans. So there were things that we were able to work on with the advocates and that campaign that should we have won would have been incredibly transformational for this country. And they're not out of reach. You know, this election could be the time that we get to work with the Biden administration on some of these really important policy moves, including codifying and expanding the reach of Roe. Absolutely. And I think the thing is that people forget that uh, government funds have never paid for abortion, right? It's, you know, that's why Herschel Walker's in trouble now because he wrote a $700 check for an abortion <laughs> because it costs money to get one done. I have yes. no problem with him actually paying for an abortion. I have a problem with, uh, you know, someone needs money to do it um, and the government isn't going to help because they don't see it as healthcare and it is healthcare. That's right. And I think the real, uh, the real story around Herschel Walker is it's two things. One, Every American should have access to the same services that this person in question uh, had, uh, whether or not Herschel Walker paid for it. You know, I'm not equipped to say, yep. but everybody should have access to that service. Every American should have access. And isn't it great that she had that access to that service, number one, um, and the resources somehow to pay for it. <laughs> That's all I'll say about Wherever that. Wherever they came from. Wherever they came from. Uh, but I will also say uh, Herschel Walker's big disqualification is not that he potentially funded um, abortion care, which is a medical procedure that I'm glad everyone has access, should have access to, uh, but that he's for a national abortion ban. Yeah. And he's part, of, he's part of a party that has not been willing to shut down a national abortion ban. And why that's important, I think your listeners know this, but why that's important is in addition to Dobbs and Roe being overturned, if we have a national abortion ban, states like California, New York, and Colorado, and Massachusetts, Illinois, New Jersey, that are expanding access or preserving access would be subject to that ban. So yeah. it's confusing, but we have to fight back against these bans. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when eight in 10 Americans agree on something, you know it's a popular idea. And eight in 10 Americans are united in their support for our legal right to abortion. So I don't even know what we're even doing here talking about a national ban. It just seems bananas because it's not what anyone in this country wants. And it would be a full rule by the minority at this point. Well, what we're doing is realizing a 50 plus year effort of extreme radical, you know, conservatives who patiently plotted to take power and control back. And we're never in favor of equity for women, gender equity for Americans, have always been really comfortable having a second class tier uh, of Americans who they could exploit. And it's been a very long and uh, meticulous process uh, by our opposition, starting with you know targeted restrictions against abortion providers, sort of a drip, drip, drip against our fundamental constitution. The full promise of Roe in 1973 wasn't even in full effect when Dobbs happened. 
let's be clear. I mean, SB8 in Texas, the six-week abortion ban with the draconian vigilante enforcement mechanism was already on the books for months before under Roe. So Roe was not enough. It was really weakened by Planned Parenthood v. Casey, by efforts by Southern states, particularly red states, to really whittle away. So, But abortion has always been a popular procedure. And the proponents of abortion bans have always been completely disrespectful and disregarding of the popularity of the procedure. And they've done a really good job of stigmatizing it, um, stigmatizing something that's really honestly essential health care. Um, but the challenge for us on our side of the movement was because we had the protection of Roe, most people until they're in that moment of crisis aren't actively thinking about all the restrictions, right? And when you have the fundamental constitutional protection, it's been really hard for us to explain to Americans how they've been slowly and quietly being like attacked and whittled away or, you know. Yeah, chipped away. Like you say, oh, you've got the right to an abortion, but you also have to be within this amount of distance from a hospital and you have to have this kind of doctor on the floor and the hallways need to be this wide if you're going to have abortions in your facility. And you're like, the hallways have to be, I mean, it has been chipping away for years and years. So interesting because I worked in Planned Parenthood in Texas when this started happening, what you're talking about, the corporate separation, like this door for the family planning center and this door for the... And I remember it was like my first year working at Planned Parenthood and thinking, what the hell is going on? Who cares? And it was all a nefarious effort to really put abortion providers out of business. They're like, well, Roe's the protection, but we're going to find ways around Roe to put these folks out of business and make it impossible for someone to seek this care except in an equitable, fair way, which is how it became more and more expensive. We have fewer and fewer clinics in the South uh, and we've reached this perfect storm. So to your original point, eight out of 10 Americans support access, but how do you get eight out of 10, eight out of 10 Americans to understand that access has been threatened? Well, unfortunately for us, but also the silver lining is the court just did that for us. If I were talking to you six months ago, I would have said our biggest challenge is the court's going to weaken abortion access again, but we have a believability gap because people don't believe it. It's so hard to believe something. It's like air and water. I've had this fundamental protection for 50 years in my life. You know, Roe was decided in 1973. I was born in 1973. Hard to even imagine it, right? Now, all of a sudden, the floodgates of stories, it wasn't just that the court did this. It's that these 15 states rushed to ban abortion. And when they did that, it overreached. And in some cases, like Texas, on top of the six-week ban, we have a total abortion ban. We now have the perfect storm of horrific stories coming out of all over the country. And this is waking the American people up. So it's not just eight out of 10 Americans who are with us. It's eight out of 10 Americans who are beginning to wake up to fight back. I think I think it's the gleeful uh, response to Roe being overturned. The kind of like, what more can we do? How much worse can we make it? Because almost yeah. everyone agrees that politicians shouldn't get to make our personal, private, or reproductive healthcare decisions. We should be expanding our rights, not contracting them. Reproductive freedom isn't just about women. It's about how our society runs and values its citizens. If we have control over our own decisions and choices or if someone else is in charge. And this affects everyone, men included, right? So we need to be very clear that this attack on our freedoms doesn't just stop at row. The Republicans were always the ones in line stating it was about states' rights, states' rights, right? But but they couldn't wait three months <laughs> after reversing Roe to propose a national ban, right? And to, totally. and to be very clear to the people of America or the people listening to this show right now, 
The Republican proposed ban of 15 weeks would be for the entire country, as you said. That's so like right. even in California and New York and these very, very blue states, there would be no sanctuary states. There would be no place in the country where anyone had who had a complication after 15 weeks would be able to get the proper care because the government had already decided they would prefer the suffering and death of the pregnant person to an abortion. So the federal law would override state constitutions, state laws, every talking point you've ever heard about federalism. 15 weeks would be the maximum. But if states wanted to go further with six-week bans or personhood laws or outrightly criminalizing abortion or throwing doctors in jail, putting women to death even, we've heard this now, oh, women should be, you know, it should have a death penalty for having an abortion. They could because under this law, they could. They could go further. Yeah. States would be free to make things worse, just yeah. not better. You know, it's so, it's fascinating. So yes, absolutely. The 15-week ban, and it has limited and murky exceptions, by the way, which is another thing. Like I've had folks say, well, you know, 15, most abortions happen before 15 weeks and, you know, exceptions for health and safety, et cetera. And the Graham bill um, isn't even that clear regarding the exceptions, but I'll just make a fine point about that. Bans with exceptions don't work and we're seeing it in real time. Bans are bans. Do you want a committee of hospital administrators making a decision about whether your miscarriage was actually a failed abortion, whether your pregnancy is truly life-threatening, what the timeline is for you to go into sepsis and possibly die because of your pregnancy? You know, it's literally the death panels concept all over again, but this time it's real and it's GOP perpetuated because that's what they're doing already in this country. I don't want an insurer making a decision or a panel of doctors. I want to make that decision for myself with the counsel of my trusted doctor and my own conscience. Um, so it's such a, the 15 week ban scenario is, first of all, it's ludicrous. It would absolutely undercut, as you said, a state's rights theory. But listen, you know, our elected officials need to be retrained and they need to be reminded that we will not tolerate this, these new draconian standards. They were getting away. But here's the truth. This is what I think is going on with this. is This is my take on what Lindsey Graham did. A lot of people are like, that was a really stupid move. You know, um, how on earth are they pushing an abortion ban when like fo folks like Blake Masters are scrubbing their website of abortion? And I'm like, number one, they're deeply arrogant. They got away with so much crap. They got away with so much of this bad behavior for so long without being called out. They truly don't believe they're going to be held accountable. Even now that every poll after poll shows that Americans are outraged, they don't really believe it. They're not really buying it. And number two, I mean, I think cynically and smarter feminist thinkers than me that have said it, they're just providing political cover so that some of their leadership can pretend to be against the ban, the national ban, and pretend to be moderate when privately they're pushing these bans in their own states. Yeah. So I, I don't put anything past them. Lindsey Graham's been filing, the, folks should just understand this, the same 20-week abortion ban bill every year, year after year, usually around the anniversary of Roe. So this is not a completely shocking thing. It's almost exactly the same bill. He just changed it to 15 weeks. So that's the funny part. Oh, you always filed a 20-week ban and now you're going to file a 15-week ban? Okay. And He's he shaking it up. He's shaking it up, Minnie. it up. Um, but listen, he works really, really closely with Susan B. Anthony List, which is, you know, a very strong, powerful national organization that fuels a lot of anti-abortion policy across the country and has already dumped over $70 million in targeted Senate races. Yeah, it's the Slytherin Planned Parenthood. I don't think these people aren't sophisticated. <laughs> they have a strategy. They're trying to they're trying to fool the American people. And we 
the good news is, again, so many on our side have woken up and are paying attention. Yeah, well, I think trying to fool the American society has worked very well. I mean, like you said, this is a targeted 40-year attack that they have you know, chipped away at for years and they've been successful. We have to give them credit for their success and we have to learn from their success that you don't necessarily get results immediately. You have to continue to work at something when you believe in it. And I think it's good that people are finally waking up that these are rights we have to fight for because we need to be really clear that abortion rights, privacy rights, reproductive freedom, it's all tied to democracy. I mean, we either have rights or we don't. We are either owned by our state or we are free people. And we were talking about Roe, you know, people always say, well, what's the middle ground? Like, can't we just compromise? And I think people have forgotten that Roe itself was a compromise, right? There were a lot of rules in Roe. This was not some sort of free for all abortion palooza that it's just, that's just categorically false, right? Roe formally recognized that the decisions to continue or end a pregnancy belonged to an individual, not the government, because people had the right to privacy, which included the right to an abortion prior to fetal viability. But fetal viability was always in there. This idea that Democrats are wanting to abort babies up until after birth is insane because no one was ever doing that. If we have an abortion later in pregnancy, it's because something went terribly wrong. When Roe was written, most medical professionals agreed that viability was around 23, 24 weeks. After that, the states had the right to ban abortion or take other steps to protect the fetus. But under Roe, abortion always had to be permitted to protect the patient's life and health. So we didn't need to change that. This is why the right to abortion needs to be codified, right? Killing babies after delivery, that would be a heinous crime. Selling baby parts, that's That's a heinous crime, (laughs) right? That's not abortion. That is a crime. And any monster who did anything like that should be locked away, right? So we shouldn't be equating these two things together. And I'm, I'm honestly sick and tired of hearing people try and do that and try and paint us with some murderer's brush, which it has absolutely no place in the discussion. You know, one of the interesting, it's you're, you're, you're spot on. And one of the interesting things about the murderers and, and calling abortion murder, um, when push comes to shove, they admit that they don't really believe this is murder. I mean, I don't know if you saw that clip that's been circulating of um, Dana, is it Loesch from the NRA? Yeah, Dana Loesch, yeah. And that video where she says she doesn't really care if Herschel Walker um, paid for an abortion or, you know, aborted anything. She used some weird analogy. I don't care if he aborted. Yeah, baby abortion. eagles, I think is what she baby went eagles. with. I don't care if he aborted baby eagles. I just want control of the Senate. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> Always been about power and control. They don't. Well, first of all, Dana Lush doesn't care about murdering anybody because she actually represents an organization that murders people. Sorry. Editorial Ta-da. comment. I mean, bizarre. But to be clear, I mean, they are not worried about this being murder because they don't actually believe that, um, or the majority of Americans certainly don't. This is the kind of inflammatory incendiary rhetoric they've used to scare a lot of moderate, sensible folks from engaging in the debate. Uh, let's be candid. They've created a whole like stigma around even talking about abortion in the public sphere, which is really like disabled our side from full-throatedly, you know, advocating uh, for abortion in the public square. And it's made abortion for a very long time until recently, you know, something that we only talked about in hushed tones and that our side up until recently, you know, felt the need to constantly, you know, qualify. Well, you know, 
um, quote unquote, safe, legal, and rare, which we've stopped saying for a very long time. And there's a reason why, because abortion shouldn't just be when it's safe, legal, and rare. We always want it to be safe. And of course we would like it to be legal, but who's to say what should be rare or not rare? Rare indicates some sort of stigma. If it's a healthcare procedure and it's done for reasons that are medically relevant to the person who needs the procedure, whose business is it? You know, whose business is it who has an abortion? So, but they've really put us in a corner as a society. And now I will say there's incredibly smart work that has been done by our colleagues in the larger reproductive justice movement, really led by women of color, really led by younger women who were very, very clear that they were sick and tired of abortion stigma. They wanted the larger organizations, including mine, to stop referring to things and such, you know, um, compromised uh, terms, to stop equivocating for abortion and be really just open about it, and to be much more um, aggressive about storytelling, right? That more and more Americans who are willing to share their abortion stories and talk about abortion, and that includes men um, who can talk about how abortion changed their life, how their partner's abortion opened up a whole world of opportunities for them that they wouldn't have had without abortion. But the more we talk openly about it, much like our friends in the LGBTQ plus movement, you know, the more we come out with our abortion stories, the more we destigmatize it and we really truly start treating abortion like it's healthcare and not like it's a shameful secret. Um, is my appendectomy a shameless, a shameful secret? It's a procedure. And as for the, the life issues around, you know, uh, birth and, you know, abortion until the time of birth, I mean, as you said, it's just not happening. It doesn't happen. And when there are later term abortions, as you said, um, they are most often incredibly wanted pregnancies. Uh, and they are pregnancies that have been, have put a lot of duress and strain uh, on the pregnant person. Uh, and as we know, pregnancy, and you know this uh, as a mom, pregnancy is one of the most dangerous times in a woman's life. So nobody's carrying a baby to that. No one's carrying a fetus to that stage of you know viability to your point and then making a willy nilly decision. And that's never been the standard of care in this country. And that was definitely not what it was under Roe. So, so a hundred percent wholeheartedly agree. But I also think we can't fall into the trap of letting our opponents use language like all the way up to birth. When I get when I, a reporter asks me questions like that, you know, I try to, I try to really aggressively push back and say, that's not a real thing. <laughs> Let's talk about what's really happening. That's a you great know, way of looking at real, it. Just, just like shut it down. That's not a real thing. No one is doing that. Let's not go into this entire discussion. It is, and then go back to your, you know, it is healthcare. It is necessary. It is, you know, the right of the, each individual to make these decisions for themselves. And now that we have so much really amazing coverage, really incredible work being done by investigative journalists, like really tracking down some of the most egregious stories about how bans are affecting, you know, everyday Americans, we have a lot of data points to point to about why abortion is necessary healthcare. All right, Minnie, this is all great stuff. Let's just take a break for a second and thank the sponsors that made this conversation possible. And we'll be right back after this with Minnie Timaraju. Today's pod is brought to you by Third Love. Third Love makes bras, underwear, activewear, sleep, and loungewear. In fact, I was just wearing Third Love yoga pants yesterday and about four people stopped to give me a compliment. The thing about Third Love is that they're all about fit. Whether that's your bras, your exercise clothes, or even what you sleep in, they care about how it feels and fits on your body. Their stuff also looks super cute. 
I always end up talking about Third Love bras because they're my favorite bras. They don't slip, they don't gape, they just fit the way they should fit, and they're incredibly comfortable. The strap doesn't fall off your shoulder, the back doesn't ride up, they make half cup sizes. As they say on their site, it's not your boobs that are the problem, it's the bra. You need a fit that works for you. But it's the same with their sleep and exercise wear. I was wearing a pajama set from them the other day, and I walked by my teenage son, and he was like, what is that? And I was like, what is what? Teenagers are weird. I wasn't sure what I'd done wrong. And then he was like, what are you wearing? And I said, pajamas. And he was like, those are cool. So I mean, there's that. Third Love has over 100,000 five-star reviews. Their number one bra is the 24-7 t-shirt bra. But even if you go to the site for their bras, there are a million other things to look at. Joggers, shorts, robes, matching yoga sets, exercise bras. Honestly, this company knows what they are doing. So don't get stuck with a bad bra or uncomfortable exercise clothes ever again. Returns and exchanges are free for 60 days, and Third Love has a team of expert fit stylists available to answer all of your questions. And if you wanna feel good about shopping, know that Third Love is also the largest donor of undergarments in the US. Partnering with organizations across the country, they have donated over $40 million worth of products to people in need. It's a fantastic company with a fantastic product. So ditch your bad bras and ill-fitting leggings and get ones that make you feel and look great. Upgrade today and get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash politicsgirl. That's 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash politicsgirl. You won't be disappointed. My flippin' teenager gave me a compliment. I mean, can you get any better than that? I talked about Uncommon Goods last week, but if you didn't hear that episode, I want you to know that Uncommon Goods is a truly remarkable place to find original gifts for anyone on your list. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade right here in the US. The site has the most meaningful, out of the ordinary presence for you to give anyone. I've been using Uncommon Goods as my go-to shopping place for unique gifts for years. They have everything from seasonal decor for your house, to stocking stuffers, to personalized gifts so you can give the absolutely most thoughtful gift imaginable. They've set up their website to shop by price, by recipient, by category, or by occasion. They make it so easy to find a gift you can be proud to give. They even have corporate gifts when you need to give a whole bunch of gifts and you don't want to give some terrible gift basket. And Uncommon Goods also has uncommon experiences, which is like virtual classes, tarot card readings, cooking and mixology, because sometimes you don't want to give a thing. You want to give an experience. And you can do that from this site as well. I promise if you go to uncommongoods.com, you're going to find yourself down a rabbit hole of amazing ideas. I often get lost on the site. It's really a one-stop shop for something special. Plus, it's really fun to go through all this stuff and get some great ideas. So get 15% off your next gift at uncommongoods.com slash politicsgirl. That's uncommongoods.com slash politicsgirl for 15% off. Don't miss their limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, because as they say, we're all out of the ordinary. I think ultimately it comes back to privacy, right? Because if we're able to strip one half of the population of their freedoms, their right to make decisions for their own lives, to control their own bodily autonomy, simply because this current far-right Supreme Court says it's not in the Constitution, then where does that line of reasoning end? A lot of things aren't in the Constitution. Women aren't in the Constitution. Marriage isn't in the Constitution. I mean, for being honest, automatic weapons aren't in the Constitution. But with the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court has opened anything under the protection of the 14th Amendment, which specifies the individual's right to privacy, to being overturned. And if you can just reverse 50 years of precedent and make women slaves to their own body, what stops you from reversing other decisions that fall under that same amendment? 
Yeah, I, look, I mean, very little stops you. So I think the bigger crisis you're pointing to regarding a democracy is really the court. And what are we going to do about the court? So I think, you know, a lot of us are engaging in a lot of tough conversations. Uh, by us, I mean the advocacy, civil rights, human rights, you know, reproductive rights, progressive uh, caucus folks on the Hill, um, really being thoughtful about what's next. What what actual limitations can we put on the court? You know, Congress can put limits on the court, uh, and they have before. Uh, Congress can um, expand the court. Congress can, there are ethics reform issues, there are term limits. I think everything has to be on the table. This is a five alarm fire. And when you have a court that is so blatantly disregarding, not just the American people's public opinion, which is not necessarily their, you know, modus operandi for how they make decisions, but it's definitely a factor. But when they've been so disrespectful and blatantly disregarding their own precedent in such a shocking way, um, it's really time for us to put pressure on our friends in Congress to use every tool in their toolbox to figure out what we can do about it with this court. I mean, it's really scary. They're but having we- a very, they're, I think they're having a very serious legitimacy problem. I don't know how Absolutely. long we're supposed to believe that they are in charge of our laws, these nine people. I think that they are aware of it and they're beginning to show some cracks. I think we've seen that in some of the public statements and conversations. At the end of the day, you know, it's tough for us as progressives, right? Because we truly believe in the sanctity of the courts. Um, particularly, you know, for me as like a woman of color of a certain age in this country, you know, my civil rights, my immigration status, like so many fundamental things that allowed me and my family to come to the United States and enjoy all these freedoms. They emanated from some of the most important historical court cases that this Supreme Court, you know, decided. So, you know, I can directly trace my existence as an American to the power and the grace of this court, but we don't have that court anymore. And we've got to really question whether it's functioning to its best capacity. I will say that I think this uh, Congress and this president um, deserve a lot of credit for tackling um, one of the root causes, which is the pipeline. And they've nominated and put forth so many amazing, diverse, uh, really strong jurists to the federal bench who have real life experience on the ground litigating and advocating for these exact issues that I think we're about a decade away from having some amazing high level court judges, but it still won't be enough uh, because this court is a young court and they're lifetime appointees. So we, we got to figure out something. Yeah, we do. I mean, people have said that this court is closer to the Dred Scott court than the Loving court. And I think that's pretty true. That's like terrifying. That should terrify everyone. It should terrify everybody. But I also think it's really essential that we do use every tool in our toolbox. And I know that, it, you know, term limits are very hard because the lifetime appointment is written into the Constitution. But the amount of justices is not written into the Constitution. It has changed multiple times. We only think it has to be nine justices because it has been for the past 150 years. But it also was made nine justices to match the number of federal districts, the federal appeals districts. And now there are 13 federal appeals districts. So if we want to be consistent with what we have done in the past, then we should be adding four more justices. I'm personally of the belief that we should have, and I know this sounds bananas, I believe we should have 27 justices. And this is why. I think we should have either three courts of nine or two courts of 13 plus an extra. First of all, we could hear way more cases 
Secondly, you would be drawing what cases you were getting. You would never know what justices you were getting. You would never know what the combination of justices would be. You wouldn't know what cases were coming before you. So we couldn't have situations like the Dobbs situation where they were just waiting for the right court to then bring that case knowing what the result would be. Because that means justice wasn't blind. They brought that case specifically to that court to get that result. Well, they've been trying for years. They've been Yeah, they've been trying for years and they were just waiting. And the Federalist Society stacked their courts and they got Donald Trump and they made a deal with the devil and then all the cases came. And as they reversed Dobbs, Clarence Thomas is out there saying, bring me gay marriage, bring me this one, bring me that one. Like he's opening the floodgates. And we need to say very seriously, like this is no longer a court that we can't tell you exactly how they're going to rule. And if we really want justice to be blind, yeah, absolutely. 13 justices would help. But I think there would be such a pushback on that because it would be like, oh, look at this democratic uh, government just stacked the court to give them their own justices. If we did double the amount of justices, you wouldn't know if you were getting Amy Coney Barrett or Ketanji Brown Jackson. I think we need to start thinking like that, completely outside of the box to give justice itself validity against. Because like you said, you know, a lot of everything that happened to you came from from it justice. Did. It did. And we can't it just did. turn our back on that. It is yeah. one of the three co-equal branches of government. But if it can overturn everything the legislative branch can do, yeah. then it's not equal. It's above us all. And that's nine people above us all? I don't think so. It is not equal power distribution as, as the founders intended. I, I, you know, I love your, um, I love your passion for this. I, I'll definitely explore your uh, proposal with colleagues. I think it's really, it's really fascinating. But I think the fundamental thing that you said is we have to look at all, we have to be creative and think about different. We can't look at the current crisis from the old model. And I think sometimes as Democrats and as progressives, we get locked into traditionalism, you know, well, this is how we tackled it in the past. And this is how we handled this crisis in the past. And it worked for us then. And I don't want to, we, part of our challenge is we believe in institutions and we respect them. (laughs) Like even now I have a certain reverence for the court because of what my own story and how I, I got to this country and the things that the court allowed for me as a woman and a person of color and an immigrant. But I, even I have to say, you know, at some point institutions are only as strong as the people who run them. And this blind respect for institutions, even though we as Democrats, we we do respect government and we do see government as a tool of progress, but in the wrong hands, it can be a tool of regression. And we have to be really, really vigilant. And this could be going back to our original, like the, the midterms, this could be our last free election. You know, if things aren't effectively, if we don't effectively push back as people, if we don't really mobilize as a nation and push back, against these extremists trying to invalidate the next presidential election, this could be it. So to me, I really hope, you know, abortion is becoming, in many parts of the country, it's even pulling ahead of inflation, right? It's becoming the number one motivating issue for the Democratic base, which is- And why shouldn't it be? It represents represents our freedom in general. Why shouldn't it be? Inflation is a worldwide problem. And it is an economic issue, by the way. It's 100%- Yes! Anyone with kids, male or female, or non-binary, knows- that the ability to decide if, when, and how to have a family is a fundamental economic issue. And if you take that away, it completely chips away at our whole, the whole fabric of our economy. Um, especially at a time where, again, like I'll, on a side note, we don't have paid family leave. We don't have subsidized childcare. We don't have equal pay. So we're going to force birth on half the population, but we're not going to give them any of the tools to manage having a family in this society. It's, it's crazy. So of course it's polling number one. 
But I would love to see, after this cycle, I'd like to see reproductive freedom voters become democracy advocates and become on the front line of the fight for our democracy, joining election boards and commissions, being running elections in their local community, being precinct chairs for their local party, because we've got to, this is a lesson we should learn from our opposition. We've got to get into the mundane nitty gritty of elections and like the basic building blocks of our democracy at the very local level. We have to be excited about it because that's where they've been chipping away at our rights. When people say fight fire with fire, it's that. Like this is how they've been fighting and we have to meet them where they are, which is really at the local level, uh, state levels and state legislatures and AG roles and school boards, you know, even libraries, you know, where people get their information. Yes. And we've seen them attacking like you drag queen story out of our libraries. That's not an accident because access to education and access to, you know, public libraries is a fundamental building block for how we like our communities, our diverse communities, we get access to information. So why not go right to the heart of that? That's why yeah. libraries are such sanctuaries for so many of us, right? So I agree. Libraries, every small unit of civic life needs to be led by us. And we need by to be pro democracy um, fighters, pro equity, pro equality people really believe in the most distributed form of democracy possible. So I think um, I think we're going to have a really big fight ahead of us in the next 34 days, particularly in places like Michigan, where we have a ballot initiative to protect abortion and a governor who's been running on her uh, commitment and an attorney general and a secretary of state, to your point earlier. Um, we're going to have some really big fights in some really key important states around abortion. But I think in the end, um, it's going to play in our favor And then what we're going to have to ask ourselves is what do we do uh, to capitalize on this wake up moment and really mobilize Americans? I mean, it's hard to not talk about this uh, sitting here in our in America and not think about what the women in Iran are going through. Right. Their protests and all these brave young people being killed. It's not just about religion. Again, it's about control. It's about controlling women. Freedom and choice has been taken away and they're being punished by death for failure to conform. It's about women being held hostage by their government and religious zealotry. And I would like to remind people that. If they think this couldn't happen here, they're kidding themselves because you can see in Iran how hard and dangerous it is to fight to get something back once it's been established and the power structure is there to support it. It is much easier to keep a freedom than try to get it back, which is why the results in the recent Kansas election or the New York or Alaska special congressional elections were so hopeful because it was the American people saying no. No, we're not having these freedoms taken away. We are going to elect these people that will support us and will support our reproductive freedoms. We don't agree to you taking away our rights. And we need to bring that disagreement en masse to the ballot box while our votes still count, because we shouldn't kid ourselves. I would love to take our votes away. Somebody you know, much smarter than me was like, they should have taken our votes before they started taking our rights, because mm. <laughs> if we still have the votes, we can fight back. Well, that's a, that's why Shelby was before Roe, right? I mean, they, they, that wasn't an accident. They kind of did do that. Um, speaking of the Iran, you know, Iran, I have some, first of all, there's an incredibly vibrant um, Iranian-American community in this country. And I've got some dear friends who are Iranian immigrants who came, you know, during the first uh, wave of extremist conservatism taking over the country, um, who are, you know, in their late, like, late 30s, early 40s, and remember 
so to your point, it is 100% about a society that was a very liberal, progressive, intellectual society. People forget that. You look at pictures oh of gosh. Iran in the 70s. Go and look at pictures. It is fabulous, by the way. The women were so fabulous. And so stylish, stylish and fabulous like, and in their mini dresses. And, <laughs> yeah. And it was just taken from them. And if we think right. that can't happen here, we are sorely right. mistaken. You're right that it was something that they had and it was taken away and now they're fighting to get it back. And I think you are correct that women, particularly, you know, in the Middle East and in Africa and other places that we consider less than in some ways um, are actually at the forefront of these fights. They're fighting, they're they're feminists in a deep way that I think we've taken for granted. Um, And we have a lot we can learn from them um, because the Christian ideological right-wing extremism in this country is in some ways far more dangerous than anything that we were seeing in some of these other parts of the country because they've been a lot more nefarious about taking the control of the country, right? It wasn't a coup. It wasn't a violent overthrow. They did it by appealing to conservatives and bigotry and, you know, really conquering and dividing hearts and minds in this country. And in some ways they did it legitimately. So that should be very terrifying for us as as the United States. It should be. But I, but I'm glad you brought up Kansas because I want to end on an optimistic note. Uh, and and you know we can also add you know as you said upstate New York, Alaska, you know um, all these races have shown us that by the way we wouldn't have won any of these things if it was just Democrats. So this is the important part. Um, we are talking to each other, and your audience is mostly I think progressives and folks who for the most part align with um, Democrats. What was powerful about Kansas is we actually got a surge of. We, we got a crossover effect of Republicans. We know that because Kansas was was a Republican and Democratic primary election. So you had to be registered as a Democrat or Republican to vote in the primary. So we can track who those folks were. But then there was like 20 percent of that electorate was unaffiliated. That means they weren't a registered Democrat. They weren't a registered Republican. They weren't turning out to vote for a primary. They only turned out to vote against the ballot initiative. So they only turned out for that one reason. And that is really exciting because that means what we've always known that that eight out of 10, that eight out of 10 Americans who support this legal right was, we always knew that that was not just Democrats, that that included independents, unaffiliated voters, and some Republicans. So that's the coalition we need to win in November. And we have to be careful while that we clarify the difference between, you know, MAGA extremist, fundamentalist Republicans and the other Republicans who are still sort of you know, with us on a lot of these issues about democracy and republic and reproductive freedom and are going to, you know, quietly cross over and support us. And we need them. We need them to put their partisanship aside for their patriotism and for their love of the of the Constitution, this democracy and their fundamental uh, self-respect about their own bodily autonomy. Uh, and I, I believe those Republicans exist and we need them on our side to get past this crisis in this country. 100%. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's not about red or blue or Republican or Democrat. It's about do you believe in fundamental freedoms? Do you believe America is a country where your vote should count? Do you believe that in a democracy, the majority should win? Or do you believe that a minority that has gerrymandered or suppressed votes into oblivion should be able to control it just because they've been sneaky about it? You know, I think it's why it's it's so essential that everybody votes in this midterms, because no one stops at taking away just one freedom. 
once you've opened up the door, it's very hard to close it. And I don't think we want to turn women into victims of the states or doctors into breakers of the law or go backwards in time where our health and our rights are secondary to our society's norms or desires or how they want it to be. I think we need to really stand up. And it doesn't matter what letter has always been beside your name. You either believe that or you don't. That's right. And there's so many who do believe in our fundamental freedoms and they're looking for a political home. So, you know, once again, we can broaden the tent and we can be their political home. Um, And we fundamentally believe that, you know, not to put too much burden on the younger generation, but, you know, they're registering in unprecedented numbers and we want we want to make sure that they that this crisis that they're facing the climate crisis the gun violence crisis the reproductive freedom crisis is what catalyzes them to really take positions of power and leadership exciting to see these new congressional candidates exciting to see some of the talent um, some of the folks getting elected to mayors races like you know when I'm 49 every time I hear of a thir- you know 20 something running for office I'm like great <laughs> like early retirement I love it like I cannot wait <laughs> but we also have to be their accomplices and get them the resources and tools they need to really um, deliver these deliver on these tough fights I think you know I, I don't want to romanticize and just be like they're the future they're the hope but I do think that, I'm Gen X, like Gen X, like we, we went through a lot, you know, we went through 9-11, we went through, you know, two Gulf Wars, uh, you know, we went through, uh, I'm Gen X too, I, (laughs) I feel (laughs) ya. For me, it was Al Gore, you know, uh, was my wake up call, um, in right after, you know, college and, you know, we've been through a lot and we've worked really hard, but I think we also were, we're just, we're just tired. I'm just curious with you as a Gen X or like, right. Like we're just, we watched so many crazy things happen. We were latchkey kids. You know, we were, we were always worried about nuclear, (laughs) nuclear war, the cold war. It's just been this bizarre experience. And I just feel like this younger generation, they're so much more clear eyed about the threats. You know, they're so much more, they're so much more sophisticated about what they will or will not put up with. Yeah, look, I will romanticize the younger generation. I think they are absolutely the future. If I look at, I know your kids are three. My kid (laughs) is 14. And when I talk to him and his friends, you know, these kids will be able to vote in the next midterms, right? Like this is the- This is unbelievable. And they are so open-minded. They are so uh, fresh in their ideas. You know, somebody told me once, don't ask your kid what they want to be when they grow up. Ask them what problem they want to solve. And that's what this generation is ready to do. And this is, you know, these are 14-year-olds. The 20-year-olds are exciting. Even the 30-year-olds are exciting. You know, I'm I'm an old lady at the end of the day. And I started this project because the country that I brought my son into wasn't the country I thought it was. And I didn't think he deserved to grow up in this this backwards regressive culture. And so I started this project to do this. But when I talk to young people, I think I just need to work my heart out to save this country so they can run it. Like my job is to save it, to keep the country's head above water until enough of them are in charge because they are, they see the world differently than we, we were brought up in. I think Gen X, we're pretty good at at adjusting. I think we're adjusting pretty well, at least the younger version of Gen X. They see the world differently and they will run it differently. They see the climate as an important thing. They see reproductive freedoms as an important thing. They believe in a world in which people are treated fairly no matter who they are. And the the open-mindedness I see in this generation actually does thrill me. 
but they won't get a chance if we don't do the work right now. We have to do the work. I love that framing so much. Um, when I say I don't like to romanticize them, I don't want to put all the burden on them because I agree with you. We need no, to the fix- burdens on us. The burdens we on us right now. Us and give them a level playing field to fight yeah. back. Yeah. And I, I, I'm with you. I commit to that a hundred percent. And then I can't wait to hand the reins over, uh, Mayral and our 4 million members to Gen Z, uh, in a few years. <laughs> I know me too. Well, Minnie, thank you so much for joining me today. It was such a pleasure to speak with oh, you. Nice You're such a wonderful conversation. And look, everyone, you just get out, you take your people, right. you take your friends, you make sure that you are voting. Cause this really is the most important election of our lifetime. And I know you hear it all the time, but we're not kidding. Minnie and I are here to tell you that this is it. And we want to save it for the future. We want to make it better. And it does not stop at the midterms. The work will continue, but we need to give the Democrats and people who believe in real freedom, the power to continue this work. And I think if we do that, we will see the government actually uh, working for good. And once we can see that, then I think it can really give people a lot of hope. Amen. Agree completely. And join us. We're out in the field. We're canvassing every day. We're phone making every day. Uh, If I can plug, it's ProChoiceAmerica.org. Of course you can plug in. It'll be in the show notes as well. Please join NARAL. Um, They are a wonderful organization and they're really out here fighting the good fight and keep holding people accountable. So important. Can't wait. <laughs> Thanks, Minnie. <laughs> All right. Good to see you. So that was Minnie Timaraju, president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, reminding us that this is the time. We fight now to save the future for ourselves and the generations to come. Reproductive freedom isn't just about abortion access. It's about how we think our society should function. Do our most fundamental decisions belong to the government or do we believe they belong to us? Ultimately, it all comes back to democracy. And if our voices are heard and respected or if we are controlled and silenced, we have to fight back now while we still can and vote in numbers that leave no question as to what kind of country we wanna be living in. This isn't about being a Republican or a Democrat. This is about being American and the values and freedoms we believe being a citizen of this country should afford us. I want to thank Minnie for joining me today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now, make a plan to vote and take someone with you. Until next week, PGF. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.